Okay, well, uh, good afternoon once again. Welcome to church. For those of you who are able to be with us, I know there's a little bit of a flu or some kind of throat thing going around, and some of you are at home, so uh, I wish you the best and a uh, quick recovery from your illnesses. Uh, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 as we read the remainder of the 7th chapter. Let's read verses 25 to 40. We have a Bible open. Or open your Bible. If you have a Bible, open it. Um, we're, we're going to be looking once again. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 25 to 40. So we've already read um, the first 24 verses, obviously, of the 7th chapter. And we've dealt with this issue of marriage. And we've dealt with the principle of it. And some of the primary teachings that Paul is trying to get across. We looked at some of those things and the addresses to certain uh, crowds uh, within the Corinthian church. Today he turns his attention to another group and we'll read it. And uh, I'm going to make a lot of today's sermon will sound a little bit like um, a Bible study or sort of an in-depth study of the text itself just due to the fact that the nature of the text really um, requires for us to carefully read it and understand it, um, I think, like wholly, like the, the way that it's meant to be. So um, at face value, it's difficult to really get it unless you've done a first Corinthians study. Um, so I'll try to draw some of those things out for you as much as possible in the time allotted. Let's read first Corinthians seven, verse 25 to 40. Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I think then that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none. And those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though... They did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things uh, of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is unconcerned about the things of the Lord. She may be holy both in body and spirit, but one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted dev a devotion to the Lord. Now, what I'm about to read from verses 36 to 38 is going to differ in your translation if you have an ESV or an NIV um, type of translation. Um, I'll explain the reason for that later. Just note the variance, okay? The NASB is attempting to just word for word translate the Greek. So, just mind the difference here, okay? This is one of the few times where we have to go through this stuff. Verse 36. But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she is past her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and has decided this in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. So then, both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, 
She is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. Amen. You can understand why this week was a little bit um, weighty for me in terms of trying to, uh, A, exegete the text properly for you, and then B, come with a, up with an exposition that makes sense for you, right? Um, a lot of this could seem a little foreign, like what does this mean? What are we supposed to get out of this? We'll deal with that. Let's pray before we begin. Unreached people group of the day comes from Egypt, and they are the Siwa Berber of Egypt. There are only 24,000 people uh, in this people group, uh, and they live in what is literally like the region called Siwa in Egypt, and uh, only 0.1% of them are Christian. So we like to pray for this community. They're mainly Islamic, and we like to pray for, of course, you know, with any Islamic community, there is a difficulty in uh, reaching out to them. So we definitely want to keep them in prayer. We have a variant going around right now, Omicron or whatever it's called. Sounds like an Autobot, right? Um, but we're, we're praying for, of course, uh, as we see COVID cases rising again, uh, and people kind of reacting to this and uh, fearing what is to come. Um, I think it's important that as Christians, I think we hold true to what's contained in the text, right? All Everything in this world is passing away, and our hope and joy is in the Lord. And that's a consistent message we've preached throughout since the first lockdown till now, right? Um, and so let's pray for that. Let's pray that people will continue to find, or not continue to find, that, people, that Christians will continue to proclaim and herald the gospel, uh, and people will come to be, uh, come to understand uh, the true joy and the true hope that is found in Christ alone. Let's pray for them. Let us pray. God, we thank you so much. We thank you so much for this day. We thank you for the gathering of God's people, um, in both in our church and abroad. Thank you, Father, for um, the worship we're able to uh, lift to you and enjoy together as a community. Father God, we pray for the Siwa Berber of Egypt. There are 24,000 of these people, and we hope and pray, Lord Father, for their salvation. We pray for uh, the proclamation of the gospel uh, of Jesus Christ uh, to be um, given to them and that they would hear and come to know Christ as Savior and Lord. Father, we also pray for this world. We pray for um, this, of course, situation that's going on, this ongoing pandemic, this ongoing uh, reality of a post-COVID life. We're now dealing with another variant that, you know, people are scared of because our vaccines are, you know, incapable of preventing us from um, getting getting this variant. And so, Father, we just pray as we continue to live in a cycle of fear uh, that, are Christ- that as Christians, as the church, um, that we don't fear anything that happens in this world no matter what happens. Rather, that our hope and joy and our peace and comfort uh, will be evident to the world and will be a witness of the true ultimate joy and hope that is in Christ. We thank you. pray all this in your name. Amen. So our sermon is entitled, This World is Passing Away. Now, at first glance, at first read of this text, it isn't exactly the easiest text to exegete and preach on. I don't know if any of you have ever done any sort of in-depth study on the 7th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Um, it's a little difficult, okay? So I do so, I do so with this you know, act of preaching to you this Sunday um, with some hesitation in my heart and in my mind. And I solely rely on God as I always do and as always, we always should. Um, and I hope and pray that the truth of the text uh, would be evident to you um, as the Spirit reveals to you. Now, whatever the case, the passage is, of course, found in Scripture and in our canon. And so we take this as the inerrant word of God and we seek to understand what it conveys and what it was meant to convey. 
But before we can dive into the text, we need to recognize and address some difficulties in the text that can, I think, cause some issue in modern interpretation. Now, without getting into too much you know, scholarly detail, right? I could literally spend an hour talking to you about some of the issues here. As to why the following matters are issues in the text, let me briefly kind of summarize and introduce four interpretive issues at hand in today's passage that I um, and other scholars and other commentators have noted, okay? Just four out of the numerous, okay? Four primary ones, I think. Number one, there are three sections to today's text. Your Bibles might have already paragraphed them in that manner, but uh, there are three sections to today's text, and in each topical section of the text, each of those three sections, Paul used the, uses the term virgins, right? To identify a particular category of people. Now, the meaning of this term in each section could either be unique to each section, so three separate meanings or three separate definitions of that term in its own section, or singular throughout. So this, it's referencing the same group throughout. We'll deal with that question. Question number two, verses 36 to 38, as I mentioned earlier, is there's a variance, right, in our English translations, as you probably noticed in your own Bible compared to mine, are quite unusual. <laughs> Those verses are, I mean, just they just stand out as very unusual in nature, and they don't appear to fit, I guess, naturally the flow of the text. And so some have pondered what Paul means by these teachings. What is, ex like, what is the purpose of them and what do they mean? Is Paul addressing a unique case that, you know, it's a special case and he's just addressing them? Or is there sort of a universal principle that's being taught um, throughout, right? And then the third question, what exactly is Paul teaching in the main section of the text, right? From verses 29 to 35, what is the main thesis of the text? Like, what, is, what are we supposed to get out of it as modern New Testament believers? And then point number four, or question four, what is Paul responding to? Remember that Paul is responding when we talked about uh, chapters uh, five, six, seven. He's responding to a letter that was written to him, and there were questions that were brought up and issues that were brought up. And remember, he's kind of systematically responding to these questions, right? This is a response letter, if you will. But we don't have that initial letter, so we don't know the exact question that was brought up. We don't know the exact issue that was brought up, right? And so... That is a really important thing to ask. Like, what exactly is the initial question? Because that will reveal sort of the nature of the answer, right? Because all we're given is the answer, and it's a little bit ambiguous for us to kind of interpret, right? But if we had the question, it would probably make it a lot easier. But we can look at the text and piece together that question, okay? or at least an educated guess as towards that, what that question is. Um, so what was the issue or issues that caused Paul to respond in this particular way, right? Gordon Fee, one of our commentators, sums up the issue Paul is struggling with in this way. On the one hand, he is known, he, Paul, is known to favor celibacy, he favors singleness, right? Or perhaps they, the Corinthians, have appealed to Paul's own example, right? If you read verse 7, we see that. On the other hand, he totally disagrees with their ascetic reasons for such a stance, right? Ascetic meaning their sort of spiritual fervor for the purposes of self-righteousness. His problem, therefore, is how to affirm singleness or celibacy without at the same time affirming their asceticism, right? So there's a, there's a little bit of a difficulty there for Paul. And with these things in mind, let's get into the text to first see what it says. Then in our conclusion, we will draw out the appropriate answers to the questions above. And I think that'll give sort of us, uh, that will give us a summative answer or a summative um, conclusion to what this text is really trying to convey, okay? Um, so I hope we can do that. Let's try to do that. 
uh, three points or three sections, as I mentioned earlier, verses 25 to 28. I've entitled, Neither Being Single Nor Married Are Wrong. Uh, second part, verses 29 to 35, the case for singleness. So Paul makes a plea or urge for singleness. And then verses 36 to 40, marriage is not a sin. We will articulate that. Okay? So those are our three sections. First section, verses 25 to 28. Neither being single nor married are wrong. There are two key phrases, um, to me anyways, when I read verse 25 that stand out. Verses 25 to 28. And verse 25, it just, it just blasts at you immediately. Firstly, he addresses, or the address, to the virgins. Right? Now concerning virgins. Right? He's gone through singles. He's gone through widowed people. He's gone through married, unmarried, blah, blah, blah. Like all these categories of people. And here's our category for today. To the virgins. And they are the primary sort of target audience of his following commendation of everything that is to follow. Who exactly this group is and how they differ from the singles prior uh, that have already been addressed and given principles to follow earlier in the chapter is somewhat of a mystery. So what we, what we can conclude is it, they must be a different group. It must be a clearly a single group and clearly they haven't had sex yet. They're virgins. But they're also, like, different from the singles and virgins of the ones that Paul has already addressed. Like, this, there needs to be a differentiating factor here, okay? So we need to get to that. Because why else would he then say, now, concerning virgins? You know what I mean? Like, why would he do that? Why would he articulate it that way? There must be a difference in these two groups. Uh, secondly, I love the honesty here. The honesty from Paul to state that the matter at hand, the issue that the Corinthians have brought up, whatever that may be, is something that Paul can give only a trustworthy opinion on. So this is a trustworthy, I would call pastoral advice, right? His opinion, and he calls it that, but he does not have, and he admits this, a direct command from God on this matter. So he doesn't have scriptural basis for this. He doesn't have textual basis for this. He has no adherence or reference to anything Christ has said or spoken or taught explicitly on this issue. So this, whatever this issue is, it must be extremely specific, like very, very contextual and specific to this particular group of people in this particular time, in this particular situation, okay? Now, is there a universal principle that can be taught universally to the church? We'll see, but... That's what we can conclude so far, right? So secondly, that's what we can see because of his honesty. Now listen to Paul in this text throughout. Listen to some of these words. These are words that are not Pauline in nature, right? I give an opinion, he says. I think I am trying. Let him do what he wishes. You ever hear Paul say that? Let him <laughs> do what he wishes. That doesn't sound like Paul right at all, right? In my opinion, he says at the very end, right? Like these are, like these are like... It, Imperatives that are really, really like, I mean, you ever write an essay and what's one of the first things you're told to not do in an essay, like a argumentative essay or opinion essay, right? You don't go, I think, in my opinion, I believe, right? You go, it is, this is, right? You make a strong stance. Like if you're defending something or you're arguing or you're debating, like I used to be in like the debate club, one of the first things we would never say, I think, right? So you're wrong, I'm right. That's always, that's always how you go about it, right? Because it makes the other person weaker, right? Or it makes you weaker if you say that, right? This is not Pauline. It's not typical Pauline authority, which 
really shed some light on the specific issue at hand that has been brought up to Paul. It's likely a minor issue, a very specific issue. I don't think of any great, like, massive significance uh, to the universal church. The matter likely falls in line with the topics Paul has already addressed in regards to the overall or overarching topic in chapter 7 of marital status. Thus, the same principles uh, that he's already taught can be applied, I think, here. But Paul wants to make it clear that although there is a preference on his end, like an opinion, or a preferential opinion on his end, it is still his opinion. Uh, although trustworthy, and I think sourced uh, from God, and so the alternative is also a viable option. Although there is a preference, the alternative option is still viable. And so this is, the, this is the kind of flexibility we don't usually see in Paul's authoritative argumentation or teaching in his other letters, right? He, don't, he doesn't really give room for that kind of flexibility in other teachings. So this is quite unique. It's very interesting for us to read something like this. Verse 25. Um, I got to spend some time in this, so just bear with me. The Corinthians in verse 25. Verse, the Corinthians, and in turn ourselves as well, the modern church, are to receive Paul's advice here as trustworthy, right? And when we say trustworthy, we mean like of God, right? Not on the basis of blind faith, just because it's in the Bible, right? Um, although that's really important. In his credentials, right? Just We don't just blindly believe, oh, Paul said it, so it must be true. Paul was human. He was a sinner. He made mistakes. There are letters that Paul wrote that aren't in the Bible, right? But within the understanding of Paul's source of advice, and he actually gives us the source if you read it carefully, note that he does not appeal to two things that he usually appeals to. His apostolic authority, any biblical or Christological teaching that we know of, or any special sort of ability from God that enables him to give godly advice at all times. But he writes this, verse 25, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. He doesn't write by one who is trustworthy. He says, by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. That's why his opinion is trustworthy, okay? On this matter, that's what he appeals to. He appeals to the mercy of the Lord. His appeal is to Christ's mercy upon him. It's gospel-centered. It's Christ-centered. And that same mercy is what gives the parameter of grace within the opinion and advice that he will now give, and it thus renders his judgment on this specific matter trustworthy of God so long as his opinion exists within that framework. That's the appeal. That's why we can trust this. So some people have brought this up and said, well, that's his opinion. Why is it in the Bible? His opinion is on the mercy of the Lord and it is to be received, right, by faith on our end and to be received as trustworthy in nature because Paul's appeal is to the mercy of the Lord. Verse 26, Paul reiterates the running principle throughout this chapter. What is it? Remain as you are. Stay as you are, right? But there is an added feature here in verse 26. He says, I think then that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. What did you catch there? Did you catch it? In view of the present distress. In view of the present distress. This reason, the present distress, is what separates his opinion from the Corinthian sentiment. The Corinthians were saying the same thing. Singles, stay as you are. Virgins, stay as you are. Why? 
because it's good to not have sex. Because if you don't have sex, your higher spirit, your your spiritual level increases. God will love you more if you deprive yourself of sex. Right? That was the ascetic sentiment and the Corinthian sentiment. So although their ends were the same, their means were different, their intentions were different, their reasoning was different. Both parties, Paul and the Corinthians, agree that remaining single, if you are already single, is good. But Paul's reason is not shared with them. Their reason is ascetic in nature and Paul's is not. Paul's is something else. What he means, what Paul means by the distress, the present distress is uncertain. Right? It's, it's uncertain. We just have to be honest about that. We cannot, we can't time travel and be there and know exactly what's happening there. We can do a lot of historical studies. Uh, some have noted that there might have been a disease going around and killing lots of people. Some have adhered to other chapters of scripture that talks about uh, Christian persecution and difficulty. Um, many historians have noted that during this time there was a, a massive famine in Corinth and in, the, in, in, in Greece and in that region. And so people were struggling. Um, they were dying off because they just didn't have food and water and all these things, like these necessary resources. Uh, so there's a lot of sort of theories on this, but we can't, I can't just confidently tell you certainly like this is the reason, this is the distress that they were going through. Regardless, it's distress. It's some kind of trouble, probably physical, spiritual, and mental in nature, right? I think these are things we can all sort of understand, right? But there was a specific situation going on. That's what I want to get across. And so, although we can't be certain what he means by this distress, he hints at some of these things. For example, chapter 11, he talks about some of the troubles that the Corinthians were going through. And in verse 28 today, he points towards a trouble of some sort in Corinth and in the Christian community. It could be loss of life, persecution, general struggles, famines, among other things. In light of this struggle, it may be of advantage to live in singleness. So in this present, so that word is important, the present distress. In this distress that is presently a reality, singleness might be the ideal. I think that's what Paul is trying to get across. Right? So as to assist in what? perseverance of the saints in that distress. Paul is not adhering to, as some have suggested, an immediate expectation of the second coming of Christ as a reason to not get married. Oh, Christ's coming soon. Why bother getting married? Just live your life in singleness and devote yourself to the Lord. That would contradict some of his other points in other epistles. Certainly he did live and promote a life of expectation of Christ's coming, but that is not the basis of his point in this particular verse. Okay, so we can't confuse those two things verse 27 key words here are and when people read this when they read verse 27 it's interesting they will read are you bound to a wife are you released from a wife and they'll immediately think about uh, people who are married but remember that's not what we're talking about the key words are bound and released it helps us to understand the situation scholars have noted that the words bound and released here indicate a situation not of the married, but of the engaged. So that's why a lot of your Bibles will actually uh, translate this text uh, in that manner, with that understanding, that interpretive philosophy, that this is talking about singles, virgins, who are engaged to be married. That would make sense. Now we have a distinction between the virgins and singles of this text and the virgins and singles of the prior text, right? That would, make it, that would make sense now. Now we have an understanding of the question. Oh, 
This is a question about if you're betrothed, if you're engaged to get married, do I now, since you prefer singleness, Paul, stop the engagement and just go single since I'm not married yet, technically? Do you understand the issue that the Corinthians might have had? They're confused now because if you're just single, it's like, oh, I just remain as I am. If you're married, oh, I just remain as I am. But if you're engaged, it's like, well, do I remain engaged for the rest of my life? So you could see the confusion that could exist in the Corinthians, right? And that's why your Bibles will have uh, that terminology translated into the text, right? So they're giving you some of that interpretation that is lost in the English. Bound is not a word used to describe the married anywhere in the Bible. And the term released does not, sim- does not imply divorce anywhere in the Bible. What is perhaps and likely in question is a situation of the engaged who are seeking to end their engagements on the premise of ascetic spirituality or have already been left um, out of their engagement, like canceled their engagements in the name of higher spirituality. And you could see from Paul's perspective and from the modern Christian perspective, the Christian perspective altogether, why that is nuts. It doesn't make sense, right? Verse 28, what is missing in the ear of the modern listener, the modern Christian listener, of Paul's advice here in these verses is that he is addressing a people in a very, very specific situation of very, very specific distress in which marriage could cause greater struggle. In Paul's opinion, it does cause greater struggle. Paul is advising thus them to avoid this pain and this suffering if possible. He's not saying marriage is a source of pain and struggle. He's saying marriage could lead to greater struggle in this present distress. Right? you got to read it carefully. <clears throat> but marriage is not something th- to be viewed as sin or a sinful act in and of itself. You must also understand that for Paul, a Jewish man by heritage and background, to promote singleness was such an abnormality in a culture that viewed marriage as basically necessary. Much like how we think today, there's something wrong with you if you can't get married. Right? People ask me all the time, how old are you? 33. No way, you look so young. Yeah, are you married? No. What's wrong with you? Right? That's the immediate conclusion in their minds. I see it on their face. Right? Can't get married? What's wrong with you? This is the natural way we think. And so back then, similar thoughts. But Paul is not focusing on status. Right? All throughout the chapter, that's not his focus. As his main point of advice, his words, his advice stem from pastoral concern for the Christian community in Corinth who are experiencing a particular time in history which is causing great distress in which their marital status, single or married, could indeed have an effect on their walk with the Lord. And that is Paul's concern. Never read this chapter that way, right? (laughs) This is all the things, the details that we miss out on when we don't read the text carefully. Promise that was the longest part of the sermon. Now we'll get to the short stuff. Case for singleness, verse 29 to 35. The central body of today's text is found in these verses, these seven verses. This set of verses indicates Paul's central teaching and his eschatological understanding, remember this, understanding of end times, that motivates all that he does as a follower of Christ. Not only is there present distress in Corinth, but the Christian is also not to be consumed with anything that is present, that which is temporal, but focus on that which is far more important, eternal or the things of God. And we know that the conclusion to heaven and earth um, is given to us in Scripture. We know the conclusion, right? 
So we live out the temporal life that we live with that understanding of the eternal. Again, these verses shed a bit more light on the context of the Corinthian distress, and they help us to piece together what exactly is going on in Corinth. Two sections to this text, and that's it. Verses 29 to 31. These verses form, uh, the form of this world is passing away. That's sort of the central message of these verses. So the Christian lives in the world, both with an understanding that the life we have is a gift from God that we are to enjoy and steward with great discernment and wisdom by faith. But we're also to live this life with the understanding that the things we enjoy and the things we weep over and all the things that we experience are going to pass. Right? This too shall pass, right? So our ultimate joy is in the life to come. Right? It's in the life to come to be with God. And so we are not to treat this life as our ultimate end. The single can get married, but in heaven that marriage will be void, non-existent. The single can remain single in heaven. It won't matter. The church marries Christ. You can buy things here and that's fine. They won't join you in heaven. You can rejoice and weep over temporary things. You can have stocks that go up, go down. It doesn't matter, but it will be of no thought, no worry in the life of glory to come. Your cryptocurrency is not coming with you to heaven. Schreiner puts it this way. What Paul emphasizes, however, is the ephemeral nature of life in this world. Thus, it would be unwise to locate one's ultimate joy or ultimate significance in that which is temporary, that which is passing away. Verse 32 35. The second part of this section focuses on, on anxiety. Right? Anxiety is a common trait throughout history in the Korean, in the Korean Corinthian church. In the Korean church as well. <laughs> Paul has already stated that his desire is that they be free from anxiety and that God's peace is to be understood and pursued. The ultimate goal here is to focus on that which brings about undivided devotion to God. To Paul, this is the highest of priorities. Now, in that particular situation, the present distress, Paul is advising against marriage because it divides attention and devotion to God, which is certainly true, but it was ever more true and even a literal hindrance to the Corinthians at that particular moment in time. We cannot read this as universal advice in all situations that marriage is the lesser between singleness and marital status, like being married, right? Because Paul has set the parameter of in the present distress. There is clearly a distorted understanding of godly marriage in Corinth, and so their pursuit or non-pursuit of marriage was tainted by their wrong or poor theology. One could argue Paul is discouraging uh, marriage so as to discourage contamination of one another in their theology. He sees the single life in their context as advantageous in devoting themselves to the Lord. And to that, what I read is this. Is our modern pursuit of marriage a godly one? I think the same question needs to be thrust at us today. Does it divide us? Our attention between God and wife, God and husband, God and children? Or do our marriages truly lead us into greater devotion to the Lord? There's only one of us in here that is married. It's on you, brother. To set an example for the rest of us. <laughs> Just kidding. No pressure. Just kidding. Pressure. Paul certainly does prescribe and promote marriage in other letters. 
Like 1 Timothy chapter 5, you read that, Paul promotes marriage, right? But he sees issue in Corinth at that particular time and is speaking into their context. Final thing, marriage is not a sin, verses 36 to 40. Finally, we see in this last section a melding of both prior sections so as to conclude the argument that is being made. But it is quite interesting in nature, confusing to many, I would argue. It is twofold, a message to men, firstly, and then to women. Let's look at the message to men. And this is where the confusion could lie and the translation gets really difficult. So if you know anyone that translates scripture, this is one of the most difficult texts in the New Testament to translate. Verses 36 to 38. This is a notoriously difficult passage to translate from the Greek into modern vernacular, as noted by the variants in the English translations that we can observe today. I did this this week. Do this to yourselves. Put an NIV, an ESV, a CSB, an NASB, and read them. It is fascinating, the philosophy that is applied in all of those translations. Very, quite, very, very, very interesting, actually. Um, modern translations have rested on this idea, such as the NIV, the ESV, CSB, etc., of a single man who is betrothed to a virgin, so engaged to a virgin woman, and is considering ending that engagement on the basis of ascetic practice. You uh, heard in the NASB that I read from that it holds to the idea of an address to the father of the virgin daughter who is giving his virgin daughter to marriage. Two very different situations, right? This doesn't change, however, the central teaching of the text, which is this, that whether you marry or not in your engaged status, there is no spiritual benefit eternally whether you pursue singleness or whether you pursue marriage. Both could benefit you in this life and both um, can also help you avoid certain troubles. The discrepancy in translation is accredited to this, to Paul's use and change of the verb uh, meaning to marry. Okay, to marry. He changes from the word gameo to gamizo. The first means simply to marry. So it indicates a man who is to marry a woman. And the second, gamizo, same root word, marry. But the verb has now changed to the English meaning to give in marriage, to give someone into marriage. So you can see the discrepancy in translation philosophy now. So how are we supposed to translate? Is this a man giving his virgin daughter to marriage or is this a man marrying a virgin? Do you understand like how difficult this could get? It doesn't change the central teaching of the text. We have to read it with caution. So scholars, of course, and Modern day, we have so much um, data and information studying the Koine Greek and the Biblical Greek. So when he changes this, the, the verses can be read as a word to the groom-to-be or the father-in-law. Modern scholars note that gameo is not found anywhere else in the New Testament in that usage of father-in-law to give in marriage. And that the term was used for both meanings. So what we know is this, is that the word uh, gameo, to marry, and then gamizo can mean both things, to give in marriage and to marry. Now, its literal translation is to give in marriage, but it can be, inter, uh, it can be used sort of interchangeably, to marry and to give in marriage. And that's what modern scholars have discovered in the Koine Greek. 
And because of that usage, and we see that usage in other Greco-Roman texts of this par particular time period, and the term was used for both meanings, modern scholars have argued that this is an address to single men who are engaged, single women who are considering ending that engagement on the basis of their spiritual fervor, if you will, right? So, um, because of that, many Greek authors during this time use this term interchangeably for the sake of, and you might wonder, like, why would Paul do that? Why would Paul change the verb? Why would he just, why does he just stick with the initial gameo verb, right? Uh, the only thing we've discovered is that it was used simply for stylistic purposes, right? And you might argue, like, what? Like, why would, why would you do that? That just, like, completely changes everything, right? Uh, but it was just, it's just for textual variance and style in writing. And that is something we see in Paul. He does change uh, suffixes time to time uh, to just sometimes wordplay, sometimes for the purpose of alliteration, sometimes purposes of double meaning and nuances. In this case, it just seems to be like the only logical solution is um, that Paul is using just stylistic variants in his writing. And that is something common of Pauline epistles, right? Verses 39 to 40, the address to women. He concludes with this. To the women who are married or who are to be married or are married or in a situation that are married, Paul urges them, remain as you are, as he has already affirmed for the men. But if her husband were to pass away, God forbid, the same principle is to be applied to women as well, not exclusive to men. Ideally, remaining single is in Paul's trustworthy judgment. He views this as the better option. But remember this, that Paul provides a framework of mercy on these matters to provide flexibility. Not one of these choices is sinful. Let me conclude for you this day by answering our initial questions. Question one. Logic follows that Paul is responding to a singular question, and so his argument should be viewed singularly or singularly. It is likely that the term virgin here is a constant term in reference to one singular group of people throughout the text. It is also likely, as our reading revealed, that Paul is talking to a group of betrothed or engaged people, which differentiates them from previous groups already addressed on the matter of marriage. Point number two. Paul is addressing the Corinthians with their specific context in mind, their present distress, their present time of distress. Question three, the main teaching is consistent with what has been taught throughout the chapter, remain as you are. And finally, question four, Paul is addressing again the ascetic beliefs and practices of the Corinthian Christians who fell under the false belief that they could achieve higher spirituality by depriving themselves of sexual activity, thus rendering marriage as a hindrance. Paul agrees that singleness is preferable in their context and even beneficial, but he does not condone their reasons for pursuing such a life, and he doesn't condone viewing marriage as a sinful act. He is correcting their theological premise of marriage and understanding of it, and also correcting their heart on the matter at hand. In conclusion, what a chapter and what a text to learn from. That's my conclusion. What a chapter, right? So much for us to break down and understand. But I hope that what this text has revealed to you is that we, the human, are incredibly capable of ruining the good things of God by distorting them for stupid self-interests rather than for the genuine, faithful pursuit of glorifying God. As you can see, our sinfulness penetrates deeply into every facet of our lives and our Christian practice. Let us be reminded of the truth that Christ is to be our pursuit. The gospel has enabled us through faith in him 
privilege to bring forth that which is not good in us and to present it before God, even in its unrighteousness, to be made presentable by Christ so that it ultimately pleases and glorifies God. We are redeemed, brothers and sisters, by the blood of the Lamb. And so too is all that we do in the Christian journey, that we are not to be discouraged in coming before God, even in our error, but to graciously and humbly come before him within his grace and his mercies. We are made new. Let's pray and reflect on what we've learned today, and then we'll uh, respond in song.